I'm Ali. And I'm Penny. And you're listening to Not Too Busy to Write. The podcast about writing, publishing and creativity amongst life's many other demands. This week, um, I'm really excited, both Penny and I are excited to be joined by Jodie Chapman, who is the author of Another Life. Another Life has just come out um, on Michael Joseph, and it is an absolutely brilliant read. It is, um, you will laugh and you will cry and you will definitely be crying by the end of it. So Jodie, it's lovely to have you with us. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the book to begin with? I'd love to. Thank you so much for having me. Um, So Another Life tells the story of Nick and Anna who meet on the cusp of adulthood when they work the same summer job at their local cinema and um, they quickly fall in love. But Anna is from a very different life to Nick. So she's been, uh, she's grown up preparing for the end of the world in a tightly controlled existence where Christmas, getting drunk and premarital sex are all forbidden. Um, And ultimately, Anna can't bring herself to turn her back on everything she's ever known and everyone she's ever loved. And she walks away and Nick doesn't stop her. And then years later, a tragedy brings Anna back into Nick's life. And together they have to decide whether or not they admit to their love for each other or whether they commit to the decisions and the promises that they've made to other people along the way. So it it is a love story, but it's also very much, it's not just a love story. I like to talk about it as a story about love in all its forms, because woven throughout this love story is the narrative of Nick and his um, tender relationship with his very tragic, impulsive younger brother, Sal. And it's it's a little bit of coming of age. Um, The timelines sort of go back and forth between the late 80s, 2003 to, to now. Um, but it really is, for me, the way I describe it is it's, it's very much a story about love in all its forms. It's a really beautiful book and you're definitely right. I love that it is um, not so much a love story, but it is very much about love. And Nick's brother, um, Sal, is a brilliant character. And I think that the way that you start the book with him as well really reels mm. us in. It really grabs you from the offset now I would say that obviously you're talking about Anna and that she grew up in this restrictive religion and I think that most of us can probably take a stab at what religion Anna um, was part of but um, how was that for you really kind of going into a belief system and bringing it to the page? Um, it was quite hard, actually. So I drew on my um, own upbringing as a Jehovah's Witness. And I deliberately didn't write the book from the perspective of Anna, because I didn't want it to be an autobiographical book, because Anna is very much not me. I mean, I made the, the classic mistake of giving her dark hair. And I've got dark <laughs> hair. So that, that was a rookie mistake. Um, but I, I did it for a certain reason, because I, I wanted the I wanted the book to kind of make a comment on how there's the light and shade of life and how you can look at something from one perspective and then look at it from a completely different perspective and it looks completely different. And that sort of linked in with something I'd had all my life of people saying, well, you've got black hair. And I would always say, well, if you see, if you see it in the sunlight, you'll see it's actually dark brown. It's not actually black. So it was just like a metaphor that I thought was quite interesting for the book. But it was a really stupid thing because everyone now thinks that I'm Anna and I'm really not Anna. She's way more kick-ass than me. Um, 
but but the conflict that she has where she has feelings for unbelievers that definitely came from my experience not not the romance itself necessarily um but just that conflict that dilemma that you have where you're raised in this belief system and you're not completely sure what you think about it but you know that you can't step outside of it and hold on to everyone that you love and when i wrote the book i wrote it from nick's perspective there is a little bit of anna's perspective in it but when i originally wrote it, it was purely nick's perspective and i didn't put a huge amount of religion in there and when i sent it out to my beta readers and my when my agent read it and my editor read it but every time they gave me feedback they kept saying we need to know more of what the stakes are for Anna. We need to know more of the conflict. We don't really understand what her religion means. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting to me because I'd grown up within this belief system. I had to completely unlearn it all mm. to imagine how a reader who has no knowledge of this would understand it. And that was really quite a hard thing to do actually. So I had to keep on going in and layering it more and more until my editor was like, okay, I get it now. Um, but it, it was hard, but it was also, it was, yeah, I got there in the end. <laughs> it's, it's so, that's so interesting to hear because I think you approach the religion with such a light touch. It feels so light. I, um, when I sort of knew what the general premise is, I expected to be reading a book from Anna's perspective. And so when it wasn't from her perspective and it was from the perspective of an outsider, um, I was really surprised and it's so lightly done, but in such a beautiful way. And there's definitely enough of Anna in there. You feel her, you see her wholly, but, um, but it, but it does feel like such a light touch, which I loved because it doesn't, um, it's not a story about religion. It's like you said, it's a story about love and the religion is, is a part of it, but it's, it's only a part of it. And then, and it's funny, actually, Ali and I were just saying before, um, we wonder if, if some of the problems more come from Nick than from religion. <laughs> um, because, yeah, he probably needs a bit of a shake a few times during, during the book. Yeah, he's quite, um, I think he can be, he can come across as quite a frustrating character. But I think that's what I was interested in writing was these characters who come from very different lives. Mm. But essentially they're, the way they, uh, and they're quite different people but they still both have the fundamental same problem where they can't say what they think. And he, yeah. can't, say, he can't say what he really thinks because of deep-seated trauma, things that happened to him when he was a kid, but also because he's a man and he's grown up in a society where there, there are these ideas of masculinity where you, you can't show your emotions, you can't show how you feel about things. Mm. And of course, then there's Anna who's grown up in this belief system which says you cannot step outside your bubble, you cannot have feelings for unbelievers. And so she cannot really say what she wants because you know it, she would lose everything that she knows mm. Mm. i and i i loved i think one of my absolute favorite scenes was um one of the early scenes in which um when nick as a child is going to visit his grandparents in stoke newington and just the kind of the picture you paint of Stoke Newington in, I think it was in the late eighties at this point of, um, of the family life and the men all going off to the arsenal and the women gossiping in the kitchen and cooking and, um, and these very delineated kind of, um, I guess, roles and expectations on everybody. But at the same time, the warmth that was there mm. as well um, was really incredible. Yeah, thank you. And those Stoke Newington scenes were actually drawn from life because that was my experience as a kid. My grandparents lived in Arundel Grove in Stoke Newington and oh. we, went, we went up there every fortnight, every time Arsenal 
played at Highbury. Um, and we would go up there and it's funny with a debut novel, for me, it's not, it's not real. It is fiction, but I, I wanted to sort of pay tribute to certain parts of my life. And, and I've put these little moments in there. So for example, the Stoke Newington scenes, although the, the Nana and the grandpa figure and Stella and everyone aren't from life necessarily. There are certain little moments like the feeling of that sixties house in Stoke Newington and how you did go up there and it was all the women that did the cooking and the men, you know, th there were, as you say, these really sort of very clear gender roles, um, which is funny because I grew up as a witness and that, that of course is the role that everyone had back then, um, which never quite sat with me. And also Anna sort of finds that quite stifling as well. Yeah. I thought that what you dealt with really well was Nick's trauma, uh, which you described as a deep seated trauma. And you really bring that to the page by how you deal with time mm. and the way in which there's several flashbacks, but they aren't necessarily linear flashbacks. So it's not as if we're being taken always to the same point in time. We go to different points in time. And I thought that was really clever because that's really how memory works. It's not as if we suddenly have memories and then the next day we're working backwards and backwards. It was this kind of flashes of next past. How um, technically challenging was that to write? Um, actually not at all. It was actually really good fun because what I did with, with the book, I was really scared actually about writing a book in a linear way because I was scared of getting stuck. And I thought if I write from A to Z, there could get, a, I could get to a scene where I feel like, well, I can't move past this somehow. And then I, it, I would struggle. And, um, I love watching YouTube videos of like filmmakers talking about the craft and how they write. And I watched one where Jordan Peele, the film director who made the film Get Out, which I just absolutely love. I think it's such a perfect little film. And he said um, that as a writer, you should always follow the fun. And I loved that. <laughs> and I thought that's what I want to do with this book. I don't want to get stuck. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to write the book completely out of sync and I'm going to get up each day and I'm going to write whichever scene is burning the brightest in my head, whichever one I feel like. And sometimes I would go to bed consciously thinking, right, tomorrow I'm gonna to write the restaurant scene. And then I would maybe think that evening, you know, as I'm kind of watching TV or putting some clothes away, roughly what's gonna happen in that scene. And then I'd try and forget it so that my subconscious was doing the work. And then I'd get up the next day and, cause I was breaking it down into small scenes. It was very manageable. Mm -hmm. And I was able to just get a scene done at a time. But I wanted the book to sort of be written out of sync because I wanted it to be, as you say, reflecting the nature of memory. And so I wanted there to be when if something happened in the present that was a big moment, I either wanted that scene to be preceded or followed by a small scene that happened in the past, maybe in Nick's childhood, where not exactly the same thing happened, but something similar. So we can we straight away can see why he's acted like that in the present because of you know some rejection or some some horrendous thing that happened in, in the past and there are a lot of sad things in the book but I it's funny as I was writing it I didn't really think I was writing a sad book and it's only now that it's being reviewed that people are like oh my goodness this book is so emotional I was like yeah I suppose it kind of is but I didn't write it <laughs> consciously it, like it that. is but it's not a sad book no, I, I don't, I think, don't I think, think it's, it's uplifting. I, I don't think it's it. a sad book. It's funny, isn't it? Like, um, yes, a lot of difficult things happen to some of your characters, but I don't <laughs> think it's a sad book. 
there's just some very difficult things to deal with at different points. But that's so interesting what you're saying about structure, because that was one thing I've been dying to ask you was, did you know right from the beginning that you were going to structure it in that way? So right from, so that was something that you had in mind right from the beginning about the jumping around in time. And so yeah. did, was that then, um, that's not something that you decided to impose a bit later when you could see the full thing together no because I think I, I knew I wanted to do it like that because I thought well if I if I start with all the 80s and the 90s scenes first and then you know move through in a chronological way like that I would have had to have completely rewritten the story in order for there to be more of a kind of narrative thread through it mm. whereas by having lots and lots of scenes all kind of jumbled up the reader has to do a bit more work at the beginning to kind of get into the rhythm of the scenes. But I, I, I mean, I do like to make, I've said this before, I like to make the reader do a bit of the work because I think readers like to do some work. I, I think they like to feel like they're, they've got something and they're finding the clues and following along. And if I had, if I'd started right in the eighties and the nineties, I'd have had to, have, you know, introduce these characters a lot more, describe who they were. Whereas just by like chucking them around through time, you, you, got to know who they were. And the opening scene I, that, that takes place in New York, I knew exactly what was going to happen in that scene, but I didn't write that scene until I was halfway through the book. Mm. But you knew and that's where you wanted to open. I knew that's where mm. I wanted to open, but I wanted these characters to be so, so real that I didn't want to write my way into them. So I didn't want to start at the beginning yeah. because, because then I might not really know who they are yet. So I'm feeling my way in. Whereas if I wait till I'm halfway through, then they will feel very immediate when I go back to it. And then it wasn't mm. until I had about a third of the way left in the book where I, I suddenly sat down and started sort of very, I'm not much of a planner, but a very kind of briefly bullet point, right, then I'll have this scene and then that scene will lead lead into this just because then of course as you get to the end of the book you need to start tying strands together and not sewing everything up but just there needs to be some kind of closure and conclusion mm. um, but until then it was very much like okay now I need a scene that shows you know their dad not being very very nice to them or a scene where it shows their mum really being there for them or you know there were just certain emotions and certain tick boxes in my head that just I thought well that scene could do that um, but I, I, I really enjoyed writing it in that way. It was, um, it felt very liberating and it didn't feel stressful because I, as I said, I was just taking it a scene at a time. And then actually when I finished it, I printed it all out and laid all the scenes all out. I was staying at a travel lodge and I laid them all out in the bed. And then I picked up the beginning scene and the end scene and I just very instinctively picked up a scene, put it behind the next one. And then and I think, mm. right, this one ends on a really sad note. So the next part needs to start much brighter. Like I always wanted a juxtaposition of emotion mm. so that it never felt like the reader was like, oh my goodness, this is so depressing. Mm. You know, I just, I really didn't want that. I wanted it to be constantly up and down, which reflects life. And also I find that the sad events, you can often find not happiness in them, but it is the foil, isn't it, of the good and the bad. And we yeah. find beauty in life through, you know, you need sadness in order to know what happiness actually is. I loved it. I thought that this structure just worked so well. And particularly as you got nearer the end, I really noticed that your pace 
picked up because there were all these kind of shorter sections that were explaining the past and explaining different bits and i loved that because it can often be like there's the tricky middle and then there's the you know when, when endings you know sometimes everyone's read a book where they feel that like right that's the end and then you turn the page and it's not the end and then you're like oh my god come on and there's like 10 false endings and i love that you didn't do that at all you just kept that kind of momentum and that pace going it worked so oh, well good. oh i'm so glad it really did so you did am i right in thinking that you did the curtis brown novel writing course I did. I, I did that um, in 2016, but I wasn't writing this book then. So when I did that course, I was writing a very different book. And I, I wrote a lot when I was younger. I did um, English A-level. Um, and when I was at school, I loved writing stories and creative writing. But then I fell out of it because I, I always wanted, I used to want to be a journalist. Um, I really wanted to be a film critic. But then the elders within the congregation that I was in basically talked me out of it because I'd have to watch inappropriate films. Um, you know less about that the better um so then I, I i got into photography instead and was shooting weddings and i really loved doing that but i just didn't do any writing then throughout my 20s at all and then when i just turned 30 i'd had my second son and there's something about those big milestone birthdays aren't there where you just think right what do i want for the next 10 years what, what do i want to achieve and i thought i really you want to write a book so I was still in, in I was still an active member of of the religion at that point and I thought well I you know I I'm kind of stuck really I can't write whatever I want to write because it will just be really shocking so I thought I'll write a, a 1930s love story because then I can I can I don't need to have swearing I don't need to have sex because those things would have been somewhat scandalous at the time so I can do away with that and I can write a book that my mum will actually like <laughs> so I started writing that book on the Curtis Brown course um but I you know I mean for, for a number of reasons it didn't work it didn't work because it was my first foray back into writing since I was younger so it was never going to be the novel um but also because I was in a way writing it half-heartedly because I, I it wasn't really the book I wanted to write it meant that it just didn't feel honest at all um it, it didn't feel authentic and not in a way where you know where it needs to be my actual experience but it just didn't feel truthful and mm. at the end of that course you have like um you have an evening where you have agent drinks so agents come into the room and they've read the first few chapters of your book and they um you know they go up and chat with the writers that they're interested in representing and there was absolutely like no interest and although i'd had some good feedback throughout the course from the tutor um you know she liked some aspects of the writing it was always very it was very sedate so there would be like the characters would like have a kiss and then that would be the end of it and she would be like but where's the passion like we need some passion here they can't just have a little kiss like that no one's going to want to read that so i was like oh god so I, I kind of knew at that point that it, it wasn't working. So after the course, I shelved the book and then I, the idea for another life started to come to me and I just thought about it for a good two years really before I sat down and wrote it. Um, and then because I, because that incubation period in my head for the story had, had gone on for so long, it just flowed out. And mm. because I was in the process of stepping away from my religion, um, I kind of wrote the book to distract myself, to be honest, because I think mm. a creative project is 
you know can do that so well just take mm-hmm. us out of our reality and, yes. and before you know it two months has gone by and actually the thing that you thought was a mountain is no longer a mountain it's this distant thing in the background so it's um yes yeah, so, so helpful <laughs> i love that it's a brilliant journey to writing i am um, mine isn't similar although it's a bit similar in that when i started to write i was very bound um by rules of my previous religion and I couldn't um, manage to write swear words or I couldn't or or I did and I kept it like all on this hard drive and I was like I can't ever show anyone these naughty bad things that I've done and um yeah just the fear and I couldn't write like real characters they just were so two-dimensional because there was just this thing and I think that's the problem when you get a block it's it's not necessarily always a block about how well you can write. It's a block about what you let yourself write and the permission as to what you can put on the page as well, which can be um, quite a terrifying thing. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I love that Nick narrates. And like Penny said, I think at times you get can get quite frustrated. I got frustrated with Nick. I was like, come on, just tell her. Just tell her how you feel. And then she'll leave. She'll step away and it'll all be okay. And he wouldn't do it. But I love that you used the flashback so that we could like increase our knowledge of Nick and increase our knowledge as to what was holding him back and really begin to understand the trauma that he'd faced how was it for you writing um from the male perspective I really enjoyed it actually um I think because I've got three sons so the whole idea of masculinity and and how you raise boys to be decent men is is something that's really important to me and something that I think about a lot um but I think I I, a lot of my favorite books are books that are written from the perspective of men so there have often been books I'm drawn to. Like I really, I really love Hemingway's books, and I know he's quite a problematic person now. He's, he's it's not particularly fashionable to like Hemingway. Um, and you know, obviously, I'm sure there are parts of him as a person that are problematic. But you know, I'm not someone that I think the work and the maker are two very different things. And I'm I'm not yeah. someone that would you know disregard especially as he's dead you know it's like it's not like I'm making a dude money so is but um but I you know but I, I love I just love his writing and and he writes from the perspective of men and and I do just find it really interesting and actually when I was writing Another Life some of the feedback I got from um initial readers from from beta readers who were all women I I apart from my husband he read it as well although he said actually you you've written a man really well but all the women were saying you know, I'm, I'm a bit, I, I'm not sure about his voice because he's always, you know, he's quite superficial and he describes women, you know, by what they look like. And I'm like, yeah, but that's what men do. Like, the, I mean, I, I'm sorry to any men listening, but, you know, overall, I think that a lot of the time men initially, this is going to sound really bad now, but I think initially that there's not a certain deepness there. I think they tend to, this is massive general generalization, but they tend to ascertain things on first impressions from what something looks like. So it will be a good looking blonde and then they'll get to know someone and it will, it will go deeper. But I, I, I do think men and my husband says, yeah, that, that kind of is what men are like, really. Like um, there's that, there's that <laughs> part at the beginning of the book where he says, you know, 
I don't know whether swearing is allowed, but he says... You know, swearing is allowed. Okay. So he says, um, fuck Keats, every man is the same, we don't remember Blossom. And um, I loved that <laughs> I loved that, that. I loved that uh, Do you know what? That's actually a line that as I wrote, as I wrote it, I was like, boom, I want that on a t-shirt. Like, I like, I like mm-hmm. that line. That feels, that feels very kind of right to me because I love John Keats. And I love John Keats's poetry. Um, but I just kind of thought, you know, that is... I don't know, writing for, I didn't want to write a man that was like a real feminist, that was, that was this man that, that would feel very much like a woman has written what she would want a man to be. I wanted him to be authentic, mm. warts and all. I, I loved that scene um, where I think Anna and Nick have gone to the beach and she's so frustrated with him because she's seeing this amazing sunset and he's like, yeah, it's nice. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and she's just like, nice, nice. And, um, yeah. and then his thoughts, and then, it, and then you contrast that with the thoughts and she's like, tell me something, tell me something real, tell me what you're thinking. And he has these incredible thoughts about her and about what he wants. Um, and he can't, he can't voice them, but they're mm-hmm. all inside and, mm you know, we know enough about his family by this point in the book to know these, all of these cultural and familial things are stopping him from saying what he wants to say. But yeah, it's just incredible. I, I loved the way he was written. Um, he was very frustrating at, at points, but in a way that feels so authentic, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, very yeah and I know, I know a lot of men like that. I know yeah. men that aren't mm-hmm. able to, and they, they, they live their life in a very kind of hesitant way, a very sort of passive way because mm-hmm. they, they're so scared of rejection and that they have grown up in a society where it's all about, you know, there's a, there's a lot of drinking and smoking in the book, but I think that I wanted to put that in there because I think that that is a thing that men often do do where they hide behind a pint they hide behind a fag it's something that stops them from having to speak and say what they're really thinking that's why there's so much talk about football and you know obviously that, again I'm generalizing but I do think society doesn't do men any favors there there is this thinking mm. that all right, all right mate you know you know pull yourself together and and I, that, I just hate that as a mum of boys I just I'm always trying to get my kids to just you know say what they're thinking and that it's okay to cry you know if they come in from school and they've hurt themselves I go did you cry no well it would be okay if you cried you know that's because I don't want them to to you know shut down those feelings because I think you know in a way through this book I sort of wrote my fears of like mm. what happened I put myself in the mum's shoes what would happen if I disappeared from my children's lives when they were kids um and something like that similar happened in my family actually um not not similar to the book but um my my dad was was married before and he had a number of my brothers and sisters and then his his wife passed away very suddenly when they were the kids were very small and then he remarried my mum and had my sister and me and you know I I can't it's not my experience I, I I don't know how it is to not have to not have your mum there um but I grew up in a house that was that had this feeling of tragedy in it where Mm. I only existed because of this horrendous event that Mm. had happened Mm. and as a kid I mean I I remember I I was a quite a weird kid I was very I, I thought about things a lot and I always found that quite a strange experience to know that my family was not meant to be this family it was it was an odd thing and I think that that always hung around in my subconscious so that when I came to write the book um 
again, I, I didn't want it to feel like, you know, grief appropriation or anything like that, but I wanted to sort of do justice to that feeling of tragedy and how it really can just cripple you as a person and affect you later in life just so much. Well, you definitely did it. I think you do that so well. Um, and yeah, just that the way that Nick is quite, I suppose, emotionally constipated to a certain degree that he's thinking all these things, but he can't say it, which if you also think about the time that he's from, it's really reflective of people who are in their like late 30s, early 40s. I thought that you've nailed it really well. Yeah. Um, can we talk a little bit about Nick's girlfriend, about Laura? Because she is <laughs> What's your view? <laughs> okay, great. I'm so interested to know people's views because I really like Laura. I really like I her. thought that she was just so, like, awful. Not awful, but she was just, like, so dull in comparison. Harrison to Anna like he all he so clearly went for like the the kind of like the safe option after Anna he was like right I'm going for the safe option and then I'm not going to give anything away but I ended up loving her by the end of the book because she was obviously just so fed up with him and so fed yeah. up with how he was to her and she just went well it then and I thought that, that was yeah. brilliant I loved her by the end yeah but yeah I thought she was I thought she was a really interesting character and you do this a lot in the book because you've got a lot of characters because although you've got Nick and Anna and they very much are central there's a lot of other people who are coming in and they're such brilliant characters because obviously you've got um Nick's friend you've got Daz as oh, well Daz. <laughs> <laughs> I felt quite affectionate for Daz yeah he's really I think everyone knows a dad totally <laughs> totally and I think especially from that era as well there was this yes. tendency wasn't there of shortening everyone's names to a z well I'm Australian so it's just a permanent oh, thing oh okay okay yes. cool yeah. yeah but um yeah I, I think I wanted I, I really wanted the characters in it to all feel very real so I didn't want mm. I didn't want Mathilde to just be you know the bitchy girlfriend, the bitchy French girlfriend. Like I wanted to, um, you know, I really like Mathilde. Like I, she's, she is, you know, a cow, but she's also, she kind of just likes who she is yeah. and she mm -hmm. knows who she is. And I also find that really refreshing. She makes no apologies for mm. who she is. She, she goes for what she wants. And I think we so, as a society, we so don't know what to do with women like that, that we do mm -hmm. just shut them down and label them as bitches. And, you know, and there are elements of her where you just think, oh, all right, that's rude. But, you know, at the same time, what do you want? Do you want someone who says what they think and is rude? Or do you want someone like Nick or, you know, who literally never, you never know what he's thinking. So I kind of, um, I wanted her to be quite a good foil. Um, but yeah, Laura, I really, I really like Laura. And I, I always find it really interesting to know what people think of her because um, at first I didn't write her very well. So I had to do quite a lot of work on her in subsequent drafts because she, she didn't feel she she did just feel very two-dimensional and very dull and I I had to kind of you know try and bring her to life a bit I loved the way she kind of really harnessed that first date and took control <laughs> and that to me just I think told me so much about her yeah and it was just fascinating but can we also talk about Stella for a second <laughs> because oh my goodness I feel like the woman is like 
a lifesaver. She's just, she's like this piece of glue in that family that was probably one of the only things keeping them all together. And she's just so, she's incredible. She's absolutely incredible. Yeah, I, I love Stella. I, she's just, um, yeah, with her kind of fiery red hair and her laddered tights. And she just, um, yeah, again, she's a woman that doesn't apologize for who she is, mm, you know, yeah. like when, when Nick's dad is trying to get her to move in so that she can essentially raise his kids. Oh, and, um, I loved how she dealt with that. Yeah. To me, I was just like, oh, you're a woman yeah. after my own heart. Yeah, <laughs> like she didn't abandon them, yeah. she, but she was so boundaried about yeah. what she would do and what she wouldn't do. And I love that all of that was witnessed often from the stairs by Nick yeah. when he was a kid. You know, it's all very like, he's witnessing it all from the periphery. Um, and yeah. yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was really beautifully done. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I'm so, I'm so glad you think that. I, re I really cared about every single character in it. Mm -hmm. And I think there is definitely, uh, my heart goes out to Sal. I just, I, lo I love Sal and. I love um, Sal. Yeah. I kind of wanted yeah. him to be, you know, you would think that he's the one that's okay. The one that's a firecracker and just takes everything in his stride. But underneath there's this sort of real sensitivity. And I, it's weird. I see a similar thing with my own boys where the elder one is very sensible. Um, and the, the younger one is like just so mad and always doing wheelies on his bike and stuff. But if he gets a scratch, he goes insane if he doesn't get a plaster straight away, like the mm. tiniest little scratch. Mm -hmm. And I just think that that's really interesting how he, you know, kids are not just one thing. They can be so many different things. Mm. They could be really adventurous in spirit, but also just only beige food. <laughs> and we're, we're, we're all just, we're, we're such a product, aren't we? We're all a mixture of good and bad. Like no one, no person is good and no person is bad. We're all a little mixture of, of each. And I, I kind of wanted to do that in the book with each character. Yeah, I love that you've done that. And I think that it's also really true to life because it often is, you know, the, the loud firecrackers, the ones who seem like they're the ones who are going to be okay, who are the ones who really are not okay as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I um, It's, it's funny, I, I, writing the book, I, a lot of these things I didn't write consciously. So I just wrote the book and somehow the characters were very real in my head and just spoke to me. And then it's only afterwards when I'm in conversation with people where they'll say, hi, oh, I saw that that sort of mirrored what happened there. And I'm like, oh yeah, I'd never thought about that before. <laughs> somehow maybe my mind had made that connection, but I ha it hadn't been conscious. And that's what I love about writing is you can think mm. you're doing one thing and you only realize that you've actually done something else when you get that distance from it and you look at it months later with someone else's perspective. I just, I find that really interesting. So, so am we, I, sorry. No, 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 I, was was just, I was just going to ask about then um, when you wrote the first draft um, and you had it all together, at what point did you decide then to go look for an agent? What, did you have other people read it first and get um, feedback and then go get an agent or did you just decide one day right okay I think it's ready enough for some for, for an agent to have a look at it yeah so I wrote the first draft and then left it for a month then reread it redrafted it and then I sent it out to a few like trusted friends so like a couple of people who'd been on my Curtis Brown creative writing course um, I sent it out to one of my sisters and my husband read it and uh, an, another close friend and then waited a, a few weeks to get their feedback and then worked out which parts of their feedback I thought yeah I definitely need to amend that and other parts which I thought I'm going to listen to my gut on this and, and not change that um, and then I redrafted again 
with those suggestions in mind and then I thought I, I can't I can't see the wood for the trees now to use a really standard expression like I need I need professional eyes on this so then I sent it out to um to a, a, gr a group of agents then and yeah it had it had such an amazing response it was just it was completely overwhelming to be honest I'm I feel like I'm still processing it now because <laughs> it's, <very laughs> it's sold in a few territories as well hasn't it yeah, so it's sold in a few territories. So I, I had seven agents that came back and said that they wanted to represent me. So then um, I, the agent I chose with, she worked on a draft with me and then we sent it out to publishers and it sold to Penguin, like they preempted it. Um, and then it also has sold in Germany, in Spain, in Italy, in Poland, in Russia. Um, yeah, so they're, they're all going to, they've been slightly delayed because of COVID, but they're all going to be translated in, into that. So, um, so yeah, it's just, it's just been, it's been amazing. It's been far more than I ever dreamed because when I was writing it, I, I didn't even know if I'd get a publisher. I just, and I just mm. thought the dream was always if I can get one person interested, that's, that's it. That's all I care about. And so it's, it's been a very strange um, experience, very surreal, but, um, but yeah, you know, two years later it's out. <laughs> And am I right in thinking that you have a toddler as well? So you have yeah, older so, boys and then a younger one? Yeah, so my youngest, I wrote the book when I was on maternity leave with him because I found, I, I seem to do this every time I have a baby, I, I feel the real need for a creative project. <laughs> I, I think it's sort of a, it's, um, a reaction inside of me of thinking I don't want to be just swallowed up by, you know, mm. I love being a mum, but there's that whole, you know, all the nappies and cleaning faces all the time, picking food up from the floor. Like I am the kind of person that it would drive me insane if I did that all the time. Um, you know, hats off to my mum who did that all the time and to, to women of a certain generation who had no choice. Um, but I would just go mad. So I wrote it. And the great thing is, is when they're, when they're very young, they sleep for so long. So I would have chunks during the day when the other two were at school and preschool where I could just write. Um, so it's harder now that he's, he's three this month and he's sort of dropping off his nap which I'm like no, oh, no. Please, no. <laughs> <laughs> but then will he start nursery quite soon as well though he'll so. start nursery in September and yeah. then I'll, I'll I'm planning on writing book three in September so I'll, I'll have some so book there. two is is done is book so two book done is done I wrote that during last year's first lockdown mm. and then edited it since then so that's yeah that's I, I, I really wanted it done before another life came out because I you know there's that dreaded second book that I've heard so much about and I thought I didn't know how I would be when another life came out and I thought well I'm quite I, I have got quite a, um, a lot of self-belief and, and I trust what I think and I thought well I don't think I would be too negatively affected by bad reviews but I didn't know mm. and so I thought I want book two written before it comes out just in case if there are really awful reviews it dents my self-confidence or whatever so mm -hmm. um yeah, I got, but but again, that book just kind of came out of me. I think because I hadn't been writing for so long, I just now feel this real urge to just write, write, write. Yeah. Like I, there's so much I want to say, so many stories I want to tell. I just feel very lucky to be able to do it. Oh, that's incredible. And it's so nice to have another photographer on who's also <laughs> a writer, because yeah. I feel like, I mean, maybe there's lots of us out there. I don't know. But it's so nice when Ali sent me your link to your website and I was like, oh, she's a photographer. 
I wonder if there's um if there's something common in people who are drawn to photography. There's something well, I know I know what it is. I grew up. I mean, my dad is a film director. He basically does my two jobs squished together, and that's the household I grew up in. So to me, it makes perfect sense that I can take pictures and I can write a story. Like it doesn't. To me, they're not disconnected in that way because the way I grew up, it was those things were always connected for me. That's really. I don't find it that surprising. I think um, I don't know how many of us in our particular two particular careers (laughs) there are, but um, to me, it makes sense. Yeah, actually, since when I announced like on Instagram and that, that I had a book coming out, the number of photographers, because see, I've been a photographer for donkey's years now. um, So I've made friends with lots of other photographers and the number of them who messaged me were like, oh my goodness, I've always wanted to write a book and, you know, (laughs) I'm going to try and do it. And yeah, it's brilliant. Photographers are storytellers as well. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. I think there definitely is a common theme between them. you know, for, for me as a, as a wedding photographer, I don't do that many weddings anymore, but when I was, it, it is all about telling the story of the day and looking mm. for the human dynamics and looking Absolutely. for that moment when, you know, the bride whispers in his ear um, and, and no one else sees that. And you as the photographer are just hunting out those little moments. It's exactly the same. Exactly, exactly. And it's, yeah. and also even the job of uh, we talked slightly earlier, I have only shot a few weddings as favours because it's an incredibly difficult job. Um, and But the act of editing as well, it, uh, in a, when you're doing something documentary like like a wedding, um, the, is, the act of editing is storytelling as well because you're trying to piece together mm. the story of a day. And it is very much about choosing the viewer's view and what you want people to focus on in the same way that when you're writing a scene you choose what the reader is focusing on absolutely it's very yeah it's very, definitely a conscious decision isn't it all these sort of elements and I think that's why I, I, I did a film studies a level and I loved doing that because I always have been really into films and I loved taking films apart and really mm. examining every part to, to work out why the filmmaker had shot it in that way with that particular light I just it's so interesting which brings me to one of my absolute favorite scenes in the whole book which is the the projection room oh yeah and I wanted to ask you did you ever did you work in a cinema I did yeah so I worked in a cinema so again this is another little thing that I wanted to pay tribute to in the book um I worked at a cinema when I was 16 until I was about 19 20 um when I was a student and I just you know, I'm, I'm still friends now with a lot of the people that I worked mm. with. And, and there's this bond between us that is from, because we were proper, proper mates, proper mates um, at those, during those formative years of our lives where yeah. we were, you know, just becoming adults. We, we weren't quite adults, but we weren't children anymore. We were yeah. finding out who we were and we all worked together and then we went out and had fun together. And it was such an incredible time of my life that I have really fond memories of. And, and I wanted to, I wanted it as a basis in the book, partly as well, because as someone who's always loved film, I loved the idea of Nick being a projectionist and being surrounded by all these stories of other people's love and other people's lives. And, you know, it was, it was, it's set during a time when cinemas were, it was physical reels, proper film reels. And you'd have to, and I I spent a little while in projection and really loved it. I was, I, I just wasn't very good at it. I'm not very 
good at technical things that require you to be really practical and really bad at them. I'm good at like, you know, being very airy fairy and, and talking and theory and things, but actually practically I'm really bad. I can't cook, for example. Um, so I loved the idea of him being there and working with these films and, and the projection booth is so loud, it's so noisy. And again, it's this thing that just drowns out. He doesn't need to speak when he's up yeah. there. He can just be alone with his thoughts. And just that moment where he takes a little snip out of mm. cinema paradiso and he steals yeah. two frames yeah. and i was just like oh my god yeah, yeah but i, I my job during university was i worked in a video store oh i worked in a video store as well when i worked in the cinema snap and it's amazing <laughs> and it's just it's like just the best job it's yeah. the best job um and the, i just felt like that affection came across so strongly in all those scenes okay. um, with the staff but also with the environment and particularly the projection room but even all the other parts of the cinema that they do their various different shifts in and even just like him trying to avoid Anna by like fiddling with the big yeah. CD <laughs> stands and you can just picture it you can be back there in you know in the cinema and yeah uh, yeah no, it was, it was yeah I think lovely. we all have we, we all have those teenage jobs, don't we, that we can mm. sort of hark back to in our memories. And, and that's something I really wanted with the book. I wanted there to be silences throughout the book and, and just space for the reader to really bring their own experience in and, and have it be a book where they're not just reading Nick and Anna and Sal's life, but they're, they're, they're also reflecting on their own. And that's mm. what I wanted the structure of the book to do as well, just to encourage the reader to really... Um, just put themselves in the in the role and, and in the spaces. Well, um, I think it might be time to talk about what we've all been reading this week. Uh, I think we should let Jodie go first. <laughs> okay, so I read a book, um, it was a little bit longer than a week ago, um, but it was really good. It comes out in May time, it's called Sorrow and Bliss by Meg Mason and it Meg Mason it is Meg Mason isn't it yeah and it's um it's not a debut or anything but it's it's um it's a really sharp funny book like the narrator is she's sort of fleabag-esque um and it's just really it's a, she's going through this like mental breakdown and the man that she's in love with her husband who's always been in love with her he leaves her and she's got she's got to sort of you know reckon with herself and find herself again but it's not sad it's like hilarious it's really dark and sharp and really witty um and I'm really picky with my stars like I like to rate things out of five and I'm really picky but I um I would definitely give it five stars and it's out in May in the UK it's already out in Australia I think and it's actually out on ebook now already but it doesn't come out in hardback till May, but it's brilliant. Oh, that sounds very, very intriguing. Really it has a lovely cover as well, doesn't it? Yeah, it's gorgeous. I, yeah, I remember, I don't know where I saw it, but I've seen it and I just had a quick check to check that it definitely yeah. was one. Yeah, beautiful cover. It had a rave review in The Guardian as well, so they, they absolutely loved it. Oh, wow. That sounds like one to be watching out for in a <laughs> month. I can't believe it's May in a month. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Actually crazy. Yeah. So how about you, Penny? What have you been reading? I have read just, oh, the most incredible book. And I'm so, so excited because I'd sort of been wanting to read this book for a few decades and it was out of print and it's just come back into print. Um, so um, it's by an Australian author called Charmian Clift, who was um, married to um, an Australian novelist. 
and they in the 50s went and lived on Hydra and um, they were part of a kind of bohemian artist set that included um, a, a whole lot of kind of drifters from around the world, um, English, Australian, all parts of Europe. Um, and um, and they were the subject of um, Polly Sampson, um, the author had a book that came out last year called A Theatre for Dreamers, which was brilliant. And it, and it focused on that group of people, although the main character was a fictional character and the story itself was fictional. And I believe Polly Sampson is, is who we have to thank for Charmian Clift coming back into, um, into print. And so I read Peel Me a Lotus, which is her, one of her memoirs about that time on Hydra. And it is just incredible. It's so incredible. It's very much like, um, a woman in her prime of her writing life, but also has three children and they're now completely broke living on a Greek island. And then what they're trying to do is survive on their royalty checks and not have to have other jobs. But she's just, it's this constant pull of all of these different demands on her from her husband who, who needs everything sort of slightly done for him in order for him to be working. The children, she has another, she has a third baby. Um, which throws her back into those really intense baby days. Um, and they're living on this island which they don't have, um, they don't have any mod cons at all. They have to get their water from the well. They've, um, they've got no refrigeration. Um, they have to shop for their food every day. It's just very labor intensive life, but they chose it because they wanted freedom from living in a city like London or Sydney, where they had to work nine to five as journalists to be able to just pay the rent. Um, and so it, it's just incredible to read it and feel like, God, I still have so many of the same worries every single day that she had in the 50s. But, you know, she was very much in this time where she was very much pre-second wave feminism. And, um, and you know, she, she just had to get on with it. And her writing is absolutely incredible and sensual and very sen sensory based. Um, and it fluctuates between the very dark and the incredibly beautiful, light-filled, incredible moments with friends and the life that they create there, mixed with the real darkness of having to provide for your family, um, as well as all these kind of drifters coming and going with no responsibilities whatsoever, who are all these sort of supposed geniuses, but none of them get any work done because they don't have to you know most of them have like enough basic private income that they don't actually really have to do anything and she and George are kind of furiously working away trying to produce books that can get them royalties to be able to survive so yeah it's it's just incredible sounds great I love I'm really that. looking forward to that one too yeah you told me about it before it sounds brilliant I um read this week many different kinds of love by Michael Rosen his new book so it's um well it's a memoir as well really but it's a memoir told um in poetry and it's just absolutely stunning it's such a clever book i mean i was reading it thinking right this man has been exceptionally unwell and he has to get better and recover and that was only a year ago that he started being unwell mm. and he's written this book it is just like this <laughs> How, I'm not sure, because it is absolutely brilliant. And what's really, really clever about it is the 
part at which he's really ill. So when he goes to hospital and then he's put into an induced coma, it's not his poetry isn't in that bit. What's in it are all the um, letters that the nurses and doctors and physios wrote to him to be like put into his notes so that their voice comes onto the page as oh, well, wow. which is really oh, lovely. So he's kind of given space to the NHS and to the people who cared for him. And then his um, poems come in after that and it's so clever because a lot of them are really poignant and it's it's a hard read it's quite it's a very well not sad isn't the right word it's just a very emotional book i think because it makes you think about him being ill but it makes you think about everybody else who was ill as well um but he manages to weave in kind of the political complexity of last year as well and then there's some bits where his kind of trademark humor just flashes back in as well it's a really really brilliant book um i'm just reading it thinking wow did that quickly and did it so well it's it's lovely and I, I think it's been in the top five for the last three weeks or so it completely well deserved spot at the top as well wow. I'm, I'm looking forward to weeping over that one <laughs> yeah i've cried a lot the last few days because i cried at jody's book and then i cried at um michael rosen's and then i read jesse ball's <gasps> census and that made me cry too and then also you also read the angela lockwood didn't you and um, patricia lockwood yeah Lock sorry patricia lockwood yeah. and i i just I think I wept for the, oh, the second half you, of that book. Is that the uh, new one? Is that the new thing? one? Um, yes. No one is talking about right, this. Okay. Have I got that title right? Yeah, I no think one, it is. Yeah, no one is talking about oh, this. Did you I, read Pre-Study, Jodie? No, I've. She's one of these writers that I've heard about loads, but I still haven't. Oh, there's so many writers I still haven't got around to reading. Yeah. No, you must read Pre-Study because really? um, it's because it's another. It's a religious memoir, but it's oh, hilarious okay. because it's about her dad. Um, becoming a priest, becoming a Catholic priest, and he's married with children, oh. which um, is usually a bit of an impediment. But um, it's, it's hilarious. And what she does so well, and she does it in her novel as well, is she's really good at making you laugh. She like is yeah. incredibly good at making you laugh. And then she basically gets you on the ground and kicks you really yeah. hard in the stomach for the second yeah. half of the book. And it's just brutal because this oh, time wow. I was like, I knew it was coming. I was like, right, she's about to kick me. And, um, but <laughs> and you were right. <laughs> and I wasn't prepared. I couldn't see I, I mean, just, when I was I trying mean, to read the end of the book. Pouring tears, yeah. absolutely yeah. pouring sitting yeah. like hunched in my kitchen just yeah drenched in tears yeah wow. but brilliant, I mean brilliant. in the best possible way yeah it is brilliant but just yeah, get your hankies out and <laughs> don't, just don't do anything for the rest of the day and don't drink gin when you're reading oh, it God, oh, no, so you'll no. just cry even in tears more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's brilliant oh, oh it's lovely to talk to you um, oh thank you so much for having me i've really enjoyed it oh, all it the best such a pleasure the, yeah all the best with the promotion and everything with this book and um the future books as well i can't wait to see what you do next thank you very much i can't wait to read your memoir as well oh my goodness You've been listening to Not Too Busy to Write with Ali Miller and Penny Windsor. 
You can find show notes, including the best ways to get in touch with us, as well as any reading recommendations mentioned in the episode at nottoobusytowrite.com. And if you're enjoying the show, don't forget to subscribe. And please go ahead and leave us a little review. It really helps others to find the podcast. You can find Ali on Instagram at Ali underscore Miller underscore writes and Penny at Penny Windsor. Music and editing is by Ewan Miller McMeekin.